Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. If you remain standing, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. I had one more study that I have to do, uh, literally, I have to do before we go to James next week. This was one that I had actually laid out uh, to do earlier and uh, skipped over it. And this, earlier this week, as I was putting things away on my desktop and my computer, I opened this up and, and it was just like, no, I have to do this. Um, this is what the Lord wants for today. And so next week, um, unless I'm dead, <laughs> Lord willing, we will be in the book of James. Romans 8.28, one of the greatest and uh, most comforting statements in all of Scripture, if you'll follow along as I read our text for this morning. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Amen. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. Perhaps more than any other promise in the Bible, Romans 8.28 has helped people trust God through experiences that seemed utterly pointless and painful and evil. I mean, people have held fast to the all things and believed the Word of God that, that this too, this, this terrible thing, whatever, whatever it is, this seemingly pointless thing will turn out for their good. And that's the promise here. And we need to understand the context in which this verse is given. The theme of Romans chapter 8 is the security of the believer, the absolute certainty of the final perseverance of the saints, and of the ultimate, complete, and entire salvation of everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that eternal security is true because of the ongoing intercessory work of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, and in the final verses of Romans chapter 8, in verses 31 to 39, Paul brings his teaching on the believer's security in Christ to a close with a series of questions and answers. But before he gets to that final section, in, in verses 28 to 30, Paul, declaring the truth that he has received from the Holy Spirit, asserts with God's own authority that as believers in Jesus Christ, we can know beyond all doubt that every aspect of our lives is in God's hands and will be divinely used by the Lord, not only to manifest His own glory, but also to work out our own ultimate blessing, our final glorification. Leading up to verse 28, in verses 18 to 25, Paul gives believers encouragement and hope with the truth that the sufferings of this present time are not worth, worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. In verses 26 to 27, he encouraged believers with the truth that the Holy Spirit is helping us in our weakness by praying for us according to the will of God. But that raises the question, if the Holy Spirit is praying for the saints according to the will of God, then why do we suffer? Why are we persecuted, sometimes to death? Can such suffering be according to God's will? In response, Paul affirms in our text, affirms yes in our text for this morning. Or excuse me, Paul affirms in our text this morning that God works all things together for good. For those who love him, and for those who are called according to his purpose. And you'll notice there's a contrast between verse 26, 
we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. You see, in our weakness, we often do not know what to pray for. But we can know, even in such times, that our sovereign God is working all things together for our ultimate good. So let's take this verse apart now and spend some time looking at it this morning. You'll notice Paul begins by saying, and we know. And we know. Paul does not say we feel. He doesn't say we feel all things work together for good because a lot of the time we do not feel that God is doing anything good at all. In fact, we feel just the opposite. We often feel like we're being worn down and crushed, don't we? He does not say we see that all things work together for good. Because most of the time, we do not perceive the good things that God is doing or how he might be bringing good out of evil. He does not say, and we hope, you know, in the sense of uncertainty. Paul simply says, we know. We know it. And remember, Paul was no sentimentalist. I mean, he had been persecuted, beaten, stoned, and shipwrecked. He had been attacked and constantly, consistently slandered by the Gentiles as well as by his own countrymen. Paul didn't go around saying how wonderful the world was or how pleasant his missionary work was. On the contrary, he said that he had been afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down in 2 Corinthians 4. But Paul came through the things that had afflicted and perplexed him precisely because he knew that God was working out his own greater and good purposes through all of these things. How did Paul know it? Well, he knew it because God told him this was, was what he was doing. And now Paul is telling us. And he's saying we too can know it. We too can be comforted in the knowledge that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. I mean, as believers in Jesus Christ, we can know beyond all doubt that every aspect of our lives is in God's hands and it will be used by him for our ultimate good. We can know this. And God wants us to know it. Otherwise, he would, not, he would never have written, and we know. And so the question is, do we know? Do you know? Do I know? Do we really know that God works all things together for our good? And look, when, when times are good, when things are going well, you know, no trials or troubles, when we have steady jobs, the money's coming in, when our families are doing well, no loved one is sick, and there have been no recent deaths, in times like these, hey, it's easy to say, oh yeah, all things work together for good. But what about the other times? What about times when you're dealing with the, the, the minor frustrations of life, just the daily hassles, you know, problems at work, traffic jams, relational problems, and, and discouraging situations? What about when the car breaks down or the AC goes out and there's not enough money to get it fixed or replace it? Or you lose your job and you don't know what you're going to do? What about in times of, of serious trial and trouble? I mean, the sufferings of this present time, times of confusing circumstances, sudden disaster, tragic accident, you know, diagnosis of a terminal illness, or the unexpected death of a loved one, or times of sickness and, and suffering such as we've been experiencing for the past 11 months. What about during times of political upheaval that stand to radically affect our freedoms and way of life? What about those times? Yes, even in those times, Paul begins by telling us we can know. We can absolutely know the truths that he is about to proclaim. And we need to make sure that we know it. And that we're not just walking around uttering pious nothings. We can know. How? Well, by faith. 
We take God at His Word. We believe Him. We believe His promises. Promises like Philippians 1.6, where Paul said, I am sure of this, or I am absolutely convinced of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is going to finish the work that He began in each one of us. He's going to bring us to glory. God is determined. That all who belong to him will be glorified, and therefore everything that happens works together to that great end. I mean, all believers are able to know with certainty the comfort and the hope of that reality if we will simply take God at his word. Paul says, and we know. We can know this. Even though we may not feel it, we may not see it, he says, we know that all things, and that's the next phrase, we know that all things things. And that is a comprehensive term. And the context puts absolutely no limits upon it. There's nothing in this text to limit it. All things is inclusive in the fullest possible sense. It absolutely, literally means all things. This means that good things work for our good. I mean, good things are part of the all things, but not only good things. Because the verse says all things. So all things, not just good things, not just easy things, but all things. And that means even hard things, bad things, even the worst things. Things like suffering, groaning, temptation, disappointment, lack of fruit in Christian service, children who cause us pain, bereavement, disaster, Illness, grief, sorrow, political turmoil, chaos and collapse, etc., etc., etc. I mean, just look at the context of this verse. It's one of suffering. I mean, we have a taste of the kinds of things that are included in, in the all things. The whole context before and after Romans 8.28 is painful. And that is why Romans 8.28 is here. We need encouragement and hope because before and after this verse, the prospect of the Christian life on this earth is pretty bleak. Verse 17 says, we will be glorified with Christ if we suffer with him. There's a Bible promise people don't pull out of their little thing every morning, right? Verse 18 says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Verse 23 says that even spirit-filled Christians groan with the fallen creation, awaiting our adoption, the redemption of our weak and sick and dying bodies. Verse 24 says we have been saved in hope, and you can't see hope. Otherwise, it wouldn't be hope. So most of our salvation is invisible, still in the future. And no wonder we groan. And then verse 35 speaks of tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. And in the middle of all of this, to give us strength and hope and courage, verse 28 says, yes, yes, all of this is true. And we know that all things, all this suffering and futility and decay and groaning and tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. And and not only that, there will be many enemies. There will be many adversaries and and obstacles and miseries and distresses and opposition and and seemingly pointless delays and breakdowns and, and all manner of futility. I mean, believers are not exempt from suffering these things. But all of these things, all of the good things, And the worst of things that that have ever happened to us or can possibly happen to us are ordered and controlled by God himself so that the end result is inevitably and utterly our good. I mean, all things, even the worst things, are used to make us more like Jesus Christ. You see, God is more concerned with our holiness than he is our happiness. All things, Paul says, look back at the verse, work together. All things work together. The Greek word translated here, work together, is the word from which we get our English word, synergism. 
That is, the, the working together of various elements to produce an effect greater than and often completely different from the sum of each element acting separately. In the physical world, the right combination of otherwise harmful chemicals can produce substances that are extremely beneficial. For example, ordinary table salt. It's composed of two poisons, sodium and chlorine. But these two elements working together are very beneficial, in fact, even necessary for our physical health. And in the same way, Paul says to us here that all things, not two things or three, but all things work together. However, it's important that we understand that Paul is not saying that things in themselves work together to produce good. He does not mean they, they work that way on their own by, you know, some power of fate. As one man said, it is God's providential power and will, not a natural synergism of circumstances and events in our lives that causes all things to work together. In fact, the New American Standard, if that's the translation you're reading, translates verse 28 this way. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And that's the point. It's God who makes all of these things work together. God is the one working. And what he is bringing to good, uh, what, he's, what he is bringing good out of is all things. All things. That's the point that Paul is trying to get across to us here. Christians believe, because the Bible teaches it, that sooner or later all things in this life, the good as well as the, the sorrows and pains and disappointment and losses, work together for good. For good. That's the next phrase in the verse. God takes all things and works them together for good. And whatever might come our way, Whatever the intensity of those things, however overwhelming the trouble or disappointment, whatever it is that comes into our lives, Paul says they all work together for good. But this means the opposite of that is true as well. That nothing that happens to you works together for bad. Because the verse says all things work together for good. It's amazing. Now, Paul is not saying that all things are necessarily in themselves good. I mean, this text is not teaching that sickness, suffering, persecution, grief, or any other such thing is itself good. On the contrary, these things are evils present in our fallen world. And the world is filled with evil as a consequence of the fall. What the text teaches and this is so important. The text teaches that God uses these things and others to affect his own good ends for his people. But then we have to uh, talk about what is meant by good. Because that is a very important question to ask. Because if God means rich, as some would like it to mean, then the text is not true. Because most Christians in the world have not been given an abundance of money and material possessions. And the same thing is true if God means healthy. Because not all believers have good health. God also cannot mean successful or admired or, or even happy in the world's sense. Because God asked many Christians to endure failure or scorn or very difficult personal experiences or severe disappointments. Well, what then does it mean if it, if it doesn't mean rich or healthy or successful or admired or, or happy in the world's sense? I mean, what does it mean if it doesn't refer to earthly comfort? I mean, what is this good toward which all things are working? Well, given the context, Paul is undoubtedly thinking primarily of our ultimate good, our future and final salvation, our glorification. And verse 29, verses 29 and 30 make this clear. Look at verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul is thinking primarily of our ultimate good, our our glorification. But we shouldn't limit the good only to our final glory. Because it would also include good in this life. But from God's perspective, what is that? Becoming more like Christ? Closer fellowship with God? Bearing good fruit for the kingdom of God? And also the the blessings that God wants to give us in this life? The good things that he has given us to enjoy? But having said that, we, we need to be very, very careful not to interpret good in any selfish or even material way. Although all things that touch the life of a Christian are used by God for our good, that good will often be an ultimate spiritual good. And so God might allow us to lose a good job in order to create the good of a deeper commitment to Him, a closer walk with Him, more dependence upon Him. He may allow us to suffer an incurable disease or a physical disability so that we learn to depend upon Him even more than ever. This verse does not promise a better job, restored health or prosperity, or a life of ease and painless pleasure. Not at all. And while Romans 8.28 is a source of great comfort when it's properly understood, I need to say that it's often misunderstood and, and often misapplied in another way. Actually, a similar way. I mean, some people think that it teaches this, you know, and a Pollyanna positive outlook on life, that everything's going to turn out for our happiness in this life. Everything's just going to be, you know, all hunky-dory. We're just going to be happy, happy, happy. (laughs) But this denies the reality of suffering and evil. And not only that, it it insensitively uh, says to those who are suffering, you know, don't worry, be happy. You know, your, your loss isn't really so bad. The verse is not saying that. And sometimes well-meaning, but I guess we should say ignorant Christians, recite Romans 8.28 to a person who is right in the middle of the throes of intense grief, you know, trying, you know, and then they do so because they think they're, they're helping or they're comforting. But at the moment of loss, The grieving person mostly needs your presence, your prayers, your love, and your help with practical matters, not your shooting Bible bullets at them. And then later, if need be, and God presents the opportunity, you may be able to help him or her understand and apply this verse, but in a way that will be uh, comforting and helpful. But look, it will help us all to weather suffering better if we understand this verse before the storm hits. So the good that Paul speaks of here primarily refers to our glorification. You know, being conformed to the likeness of Jesus, which will ultimately be completed in our glorification. And his point is that God is sovereignly in charge of the world so that all the things that happen to a Christian, they're all ordered in such a way that they all work for our good. And so you see, the hope of the believer is not that we're going to escape difficulty, distress, sorrowing, suffering, tragedy, and grief, but that our sovereign God is going to make every one of our agonies an instrument of His mercy to do us good. You meant it for evil, Joseph said to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. But he said what? God meant it for good. And so it is with every calamity of those who love God. God means it for good, though we may not see how it could possibly be good, because we most often don't see the whole picture. 
Years ago, a fishing fleet went out from a small harbor in the, uh, on the eastern shore of Canada. And that afternoon, a severe storm came in, and by nightfall, not a single ship out of all of the fleet had found its way into port. So all night long, wives, mothers, children, and, and sweethearts paced up and down the beach, wringing their hands and, and calling on God to save their loved ones. And then to add to the horror of the situation, one of the cottages caught fire, and and since the men were all away, it was impossible to save the home. But when the morning broke, to everyone's joy, the entire fleet had found safe harbor in the bay. But there was one face that was a picture of despair, the wife of the man whose home had been destroyed. And so meeting her husband as he landed, she cried, we're all ruined, Our, our home and everything in it was destroyed by fire. But her husband replied, thank God for the fire. Because it was the light of our burning cottage that guided the whole fleet safely back into harbor. You see, at any given time, we see such a very small part of the whole picture. I mean, God is the only one who can see all of the pieces of the puzzle. And he knows exactly what to do, when to do it, and how it should be done. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's extremely painful. And most often it takes time. And we don't like that either. As one man said, I read this great quote this week. He said, let's just admit it. You and I naturally demand God carry out a microwavable one-day plan for our lives. (laughs) When in truth, he is often often carrying out a 70-year vocational plan with all eternity to come beyond that. So it's painful. It often takes time. It certainly doesn't always come out the way we expect. But we have God's promise that he will work all things together for the good. Even those things that men mean as the severest kind of evil toward us. God works all things together for the purest, truest good. And in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, God took the most absolute evil that Satan could devise and ordained that it should be the greatest conceivable blessing that he could offer to fallen mankind, eternal salvation from sin. One man said, the confidence that our sovereign God governs for our good, all the pain and all the pleasure that we will ever experience is an absolutely incomparable refuge and security and hope and power in our lives. No promise in all the world surpasses the height and breadth and weight of Romans 8.28. It brings stability and depth and freedom into our lives. And how true that is. As we go through the pain the problems, and the disappointments of life. I mean, not only that others disappoint us, but we ourselves so often disappoint people, and we know it. You know, as we struggle with our own sins and failures, as we see all that is going on around us and all that's going on in us, we must come back to the truth of Romans 8, 28. No matter what our situation, our suffering, our sinful failure, our pain, our lack of faith in those things as well as in all other things. Our Heavenly Father is working to produce our ultimate good, our eternal glory, and absolutely nothing can change that. And that is extremely good news. That's why he says in verse 39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't matter what happens in the world around me. It doesn't matter what happens on a global basis. It doesn't matter what happens on a national level. It it doesn't really matter what happens on a personal level. It doesn't matter what intersects with my life because in the end, I belong to Christ. And you and I have been predestined to be glorified. That's the plan of God. That's where I'm going, that's where you're going, and everything that happens in our lives is working toward that end. I mean, nothing can come into our lives that God doesn't work together for our good. You say, well, how does God do this? How can he work this all out? Well, he can do it because he's the sovereign God. 
He's the Most High, Lord of heaven and earth. And He is subject to no one. He is influenced by no one. He is absolutely independent. God does as He pleases, only as He pleases, and always as He pleases. He said to the prophet Isaiah, you know, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. He says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, second part of the verse. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God sovereignly works all things together for our good because he is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He is omnipotent. He has all power to work any and every circumstance for his glory and our good. God is immutable. In other words, he never changes. He is eternal. And so he will go on working like this forever. He is infinitely loving, faithful, and merciful. And he will, he will always act according to his nature. And that's how he can work all the varied experiences, events, and circumstances of our lives together for our ultimate good. But it's very important we also understand that all things do not work together for good for everyone. This promise is not true in everyone's case. There is a qualification to receive of the amazing promise of this verse. You see, it's only for his children that God promises to work everything for good. And that being the case, there are two things that must be true of us if this promise is to be ours. First of all, Paul says this glorious promise is, notice the verse, for those who, what? Say it again. For those who love God. All things work together for good for those who love God. You see, a true believer is a lover of God. When God does his mighty uh, transforming work of grace in someone, he produces a lover. You see, the first mark of saving faith is love for God. True salvation produces lovers of God because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, Paul said in Romans 5. It's not by accident that Paul lists love as the, the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The Apostle John said, we love him because he first loved us. Because God loved us redemptively and transformed us, we now love him. We're, we're lovers of God. Unbelievers are haters of God as much as they try and deny that. But that's what the Bible says they are. But believers are lovers of God. I mean, this is the first and great commandment that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, with your entire being. I mean, nothing is more indicative of being a Christian than the fact that you love God and you want to love Him more and more and more because you see, redeemed people love the merciful and gracious God who has saved them. In Ephesians 6.24, Paul refers to Christians as those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love, or with a love incorruptible. And when we love Him, the fruit of that love is going to be manifested in our lives in a number of ways. How? Well, first of all, by longing for, a, for personal communion with the Lord. I mean, that is... That passionate desire is what led the psalmist to say in Psalm 42, as a deer pants for the flowing streams or for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So this love is manifest in our lives, first of all, by longing for personal communion with the Lord. Secondly, love for God trusts in God's power. Love for God is characterized by peace that only He can give. That peace that passes all understanding and will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
Love for God is, is feeling hurt when His name or His word is dishonored. Number five, love for God is characterized by a passion for the truth. If you have no passion for the truth of God's word, you have no love for God. Number six, love for God loves the things that God loves. And we know uh, what he loves through his word. Number seven, love for God loves the people that God loves, which means loving other believers and, and his church. It's, mean loving, it's, it's loving God and the things of God and the people of God and the church of God. If you have no love for the church, no desire to be in the church, you have no love for God. Love for God hates what God hates. Godly love cannot tolerate evil. The loving Christian grieves over sin, first of all, for sin in his own life, which we all have uh, far more than we care to admit. But the loving Christian grieves over sin, his own sin, first of all, but also for sin in the lives of others, especially in the lives of fellow believers. Number nine, love for God longs for Christ's return. We're looking for and and longing for the, the, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And are you longing for His coming? And then number 10, and finally, the greatest manifestation of genuine love for God is obedience. Obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But this does not mean that the mere keeping of his commandments is love because the Sadducees and the Pharisees outwardly kept the commandments and and they didn't love the Lord, not at all. They miss the whole point of the Scriptures. No, it means loving and cherishing Jesus is what prompts you to keep His commandments. It means keeping the commandments is the fruit of your love. You know, if I love Him, my heart prompts me to obey Him. It's just a reflex of the redeemed heart to all that God is for us in Christ. It's not a matter of gritting my teeth and and doing it because I have to. It means I do it because I love Him. But look, it's obviously and, and painfully true that we struggle with obedience because of the flesh. And we certainly don't love the Lord as as fully and as passionately as we should all of the time. Because we're still sinful and imperfect. I mean, we're constantly battling the sinful remnants of the old self. That means there are highs and lows. It means that our love ebbs and flows. I mean, our our love for Christ is genuine, but, but it's not yet perfect. In fact, it is far, far from it. But loving Him is our heart's desire, and that's the direction of our lives. And Jesus said in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So if you have no desire for obedience to the word of God, none whatsoever, if your life is characterized by disobedience, don't tell me you love God. Because Jesus says, he it is, uh, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me, Jesus says, will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. And so the promise of Romans 8.28 is limited. It's only for God's children. It's only for those who love God because he first loved them. And secondly, notice the verse... It is for those who are called according to his purpose. And those who love God are also identified as those who are called according to his purpose. You say, well, what does that mean? What does called mean? Well, in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, Jesus told a parable in which he said, For many are called, but few are chosen. 
And when Jesus said that many are called, but few are chosen, he was referring to the gospel's external or general call. And that is the call that goes out to all men everywhere, calling them to repent and believe in Christ. That's the general call. The gospel goes out to everyone, calling them to faith in Christ. And in the history of the church, nothing is more glaringly obvious than the fact that many, perhaps most people, who receive this general call reject it. It's always been the few and the many, right? Many are on the broad road, few are on that narrow road that leads to life. But in the epistles, the terms called and calling are used in a different sense. In the epistles, the word called or calling always refers to what theologians refer to as God's effectual call which is the sovereign work of God in a believer's heart that brings him to a new life in Christ. And that is exactly the way that Paul uses it here in Romans 8.28. So the call Paul refers to is the effectual call. It's when God calls a person to Christ by bringing them into contact with the gospel and then making their dead hearts alive so that they hear the gospel as irresistibly true and, and beautiful and they respond by coming to faith in Christ. Turn over to Ephesians 2 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. I mean, we could spend hours here, but we're just going to read through here. And you were dead, I mean spiritually dead, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So that's what we were before Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, the the devil was our father. We were following him, that spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom uh, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So that's what we were before Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, living for the passions of our flesh, carrying out our, our fleshly desires, the desires of our minds. We were by nature children of wrath, just like every other unbeliever. But, verse 4, and thank God this is there. But, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? What did God do when we were dead? Made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, through faith. And then what does he say? That wasn't even yours. You didn't muster that up on your own. He says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works or anything that you do, so that no one may boast. And the point is simply that until God calls us from the dead, like, or from the dead, from our spiritually dead state, like Jesus called Lazarus uh, from physical death, we cannot be saved because we cannot understand the truth because we're spiritually dead and blind. I mean, we're natural, the Bible says. We're natural men. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They're foolishness to him or folly to him. And Paul says he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man or the unsaved man cannot understand the things of God. 
The only way anybody would ever be, be converted is by the, this divine effectual call. You say, well, how does this call come? Through the gospel. God uses human agents, pastors, evangelists, Christian people, uh, like everyone here. He uses you and I to proclaim the gospel through which God makes effective this call to salvation. As Paul said in, in Romans 10, 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how, how, how are they to hear without someone preaching? It's through his word. Specifically the truth of the gospel message and through the power of his spirit that God calls men to himself. He gives life to their otherwise dead soul. He opens their heart. Just like the woman Lydia, remember in Acts 16. And we read there that uh, Lydia, as she listened to Paul, we're told that God opened her heart to pay attention. That, and that word that's translated pay attention to means to give, give oneself up to. As she listened to Paul, Preaching the gospel. God opened her heart to, and, and the gospel appeared to her to be lovely and exactly what she needed. And, and she gave herself up to the gospel, up to what was said by Paul, and then she was baptized. See, the only way anyone can come to salvation is if the Lord gives life to their otherwise dead soul, opens their heart, takes away their spiritual blindness, overpowers their natural inability to understand, and gives them the faith to believe, and then of their own decision they will call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. All believers without exception are called by God. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It is God who initiates our salvation. But although salvation is by God's initiative and power, it is never accomplished apart from faith. So it's impossible, as, as some are teaching today, that a person can be saved and never know it. Impossible. No person is saved apart from a conscious and willful decision to trust Christ alone for salvation. Because as Paul went on to say in, in Romans 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you hear the call of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, you respond to God through faith in Christ. You trust God for the forgiveness of your sin because of the death of Christ. If you receive from him the free gift of righteousness by faith alone, then all things, from the sweetest things to the most severe and bitter and painful things, all of those things are going to work together for your good. That's the promise. And so those for whom everything works together for good are the people who love God. That's from our side. Our love for God. We love God. But why do we love God? Why do we love Jesus? Well, even that is because he first loved us and he called us. God went into the darkness and deadness of our hearts and awakened us. That's what the, that's what the called means. And just as our love originates with God, so does our calling into his heavenly family. But we've not only been called, look back at the verse. Paul says we've been called according to his, according to God's purpose. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to what? What does it say? Does it say their merit? Does it say their great intellect because they were so much smarter than everyone else? Does it say their sensitivity? You know, their religious sensibility, their desire? No. It says, according to his purpose. See, all of this springs from God. And Paul expands on and clarifies the meaning of God's purpose in verses 29 to 30. 
But suffice it to say, this is the bottom line. We are called and saved because God purposed to save us. Why? That we might be made into the likeness of his Son. Again, Romans 29 and 30. The goal of God's predestined purpose for all who belong to him is that they would be conformed in the, into the image of his Son. In other words, that we would be made like Jesus Christ. This is the prize of the upward call. And those he called are justified, all the justified are glorified, and this is because when God predestines something to happen, it absolutely happens. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. And God predestined our final Christ-likeness and our being with Christ. That means our glory. He is going to bring to pass what he predestined by calling us and then justifying us and then glorifying us. And if you'll notice verse 30, Paul uses the past tense, doesn't he? And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You say, well, that hasn't happened yet. That's exactly right, and that's his point. He uses the past tense for a future event to stress to us its absolute certainty. This is the supreme guarantee of our eternal salvation. You see, the reason no one uh, will ever lose their salvation is because God purposed to save us eternally. And like I said, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, if we could lose it, it would already have been lost. We didn't save ourselves, and we cannot keep ourselves saved. It's not based on our purpose or our decision. It's based on His. And this is the supreme guarantee of the believer's security. All of this is according to God's purpose. And certainly it would satisfy a lot of people if it said, according to your decision. But it does not. It says, according to God's purpose. In fact, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, nor of the will of man, nor, or it says that, nor the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Because you see, left to ourselves, man, unsaved man, left to himself, would never believe. Say, how do you know? Well, Romans chapter 3. Paul writes, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. And then he says, no one seeks for God. None. Left to ourselves, we would never believe. Salvation is based upon the sovereign pleasure of God. He purposed it, and he will complete it. Whatever God determines to do, he finishes. Since he is infinite in power, he has the ability to sustain his will to its utter completion. And we know this. That's how Paul began the verse. And we know, he said, we can know it. And we can be comforted in the knowledge that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. We can know with absolute certainty, as verses 29 and 30 says, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We can know these things for absolute certain. You say, how do we know this? Because God never breaks his word. God's word never returns to him void or empty. God's word always accomplishes that which he purposes. I mean, he said in Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I do not change. He said in Romans 11.29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God never changes his mind about a calling. He's not going to look at you someday as, as a true believer in Christ and say, boy, did I make a mistake on that guy. I'm going to withdraw my calling on him. No. 
the gifts and the calling of God are, are irrevocable. And so never ever for a moment do you and I have to fear the loss of our salvation. And certainly, and it goes without saying, I shouldn't even have to say it. That doesn't mean you can just go live uh, however you want to and then think in the end you're going to be saved. Because you're also supposed to love God. And that's going to be manifested in your life. And one of the key ways it's manifested is through your obedience to his word, your love for him and your obedience to his word. So these people who uh, want to proclaim that they're a Christian and they live like hell and expect to uh, go to heaven in the end, they're sadly mistaken. And they're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day and hear him say, sorry, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. But as believers in Christ, we can know beyond all doubt that every aspect of our lives is in God's hands and it'll be used by the Lord, not only to manifest His glory, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, but also to work out for our good and our own ultimate blessing. And we can know because God is causing all things to work together for our good, not only in time, but also in eternity. Because we love him, and we love him because he first loved us, he called us, he called us with an effectual saving call because he purposed to do that, and because of that, we could rest assured that our lives are in his hands and he is absolutely going to complete what he began. John Stott said, God's love for us found expression in his eternal purpose and his historical call. So God has a saving purpose and is working in accordance with it. Life is not the random mess which it may sometimes appear to be. We know that all things are working together for our good, not our condemnation. Aren't you glad for that? But for that to be true of us, we must love God and be called according to God's purpose. And, and listen, these are not two groups of people. You know, those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. These are not two groups of people. This is one group of people with two things that are true of them. They love God and they're called according to his purpose. And I find it very interesting that Paul mentions these two things instead of just one of them. But think about it. If he had only said that all things work together for good for those who love God, that would mean that the promise rests on my love for God, which is shaky ground, to say the least. Because my love for God, like your love for God, is fickle, and it varies, and it's often very weak. Such a massive promise like this could never be based upon my love for God or your love for God, which is why Paul says this promise doesn't rest on our weak and flimsy love. Rather, it rests on the unshakable foundation of God's calling and purpose. It's based on God's work, not my experience. God's call, not my love. Our love, our lo our love is subjective. God's call is is objective. Our love is our act and God's call is his act. Our love is an effect and God's love is the cause. You and I are not the key here. And that goes against the grain of so much of our man-centered theology today. We're not the key. God is the key. It all begins and ends with him. The gospel begins with God, not with us. He is the key. God is the key, and, and it's his work that will keep this promise true for us, or, loved ones, it will not be true at all. And so Paul gives both. He tells us the objective, solid, divine work of God that makes the promise sure and unshakable. He called us according to his purpose. And he tells us what happened in us when God called us so that we can know what has happened. We love God. We love God and we can know uh, all that he is for us in Jesus Christ. 
And so the promise in verse 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose is so incredible and so unbelievable. Because so often, almost everything in our lives seems to say just the opposite. But it's true. Loved ones, it's true. All things do work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so what effect should this have upon us? Well, if you're not a believer in Christ, then I pray that the effect will be to make you long to trust Christ as Lord and Savior. Because trusting Christ alone for salvation, and that is the only way that you are able to claim uh, the promise that he works all things for your good and the other promises that he gives to believers. So if you don't know him, then trust him. I'm calling upon you today to put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. It's your only hope. So if you don't trust him, trust Christ alone this morning for salvation. And for those of us who are believers, I mean, Romans 8.28 is, is encouragement. It's encouragement to continue to follow Jesus no matter what it costs. And in the coming days and weeks and months and years, it, it could cost us very much. But this encourages us to continue to follow Christ no matter what the cost and uh, whatever it costs. Whatever it costs. We know that God is going to work it for our ultimate good and for his glory. I want to close with this. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, told a story about, it's titled The Watch. This is what it said. An old preacher who lived about 100 years ago used this illustration to explain this matter that we're speaking of. A man came to him one day and said, here is a statement which appears to be contradictory. All things work together for good to them that love God. How can that be? The good things I can see are working in that direction. But look at those other things. They seem to be working in the opposite direction. So how can you say that things which are working in opposite directions are for my good? The old preacher answered by using the illustration of a watch. He said, take your watch and open it. You know, what do you see? You see that one wheel is turning in a counterclockwise direction, but it's attached to another wheel that is working in a clockwise direction. You look at this machinery and you say, this is mad. This is quite ridiculous. Here are wheels turning in opposite direction. The man who made the watch must be a madman. But he wasn't. He has so arranged this watch and put in a mainspring to govern all the wheels that when it's wound up, the one wheel turns this way and another that way. They are all working together to the same end. And then Lloyd-Jones said, our lives are like that. We can look at life and, and at first, you know, uh, look at life and, and, and ask at first, what is happening? I can see that certain things are good for me, but other things seem to be all against me. But he said, think again of the great watchmaker who has planned it all. Do not jump to conclusions. Look for the ultimate purpose. Look for the ultimate end. And if you do so with a spiritual eye, you will soon begin to see that God knows what he is doing. We shall see this truth clearly in the great doctrine which is to follow. It is all God's purpose. Look at life again with spiritual eyes and you will come to the conclusion that all things that are happening to you are working together for your good. God has planned it all. He has wound up the watch of our lives. He keeps it going. And all is working together for our good, not only here, but primarily for our ultimate and final good. It's a great illustration. You see, our infinitely wise, our infinitely powerful God promises to make everything beneficial to his people. 
Not just nice things and, and good things, but horrible things. Like tribulation and distress and peril and slaughter. But God takes everything that happens in your life and mine if we belong to him. And he weaves it together to to produce something that, that is truly good. Not superficially good, but really good. And it may not seem that way now. It may not seem that way when, when it's happening. But that's where God is taking it. And we can believe him. We can take him at his word. We must. Because he is faithful. He is true. And he can't be anything but faithful and true. That's his very nature. And so aren't you glad this morning that our lives are in his hands? And that things aren't just spinning out of control. No, they're under control. And God is ordering all things to bring about our ultimate good and his glory. Who knows what this year is going to hold? But God holds the year, right? And he holds us. So, hey, bring it on, right? Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.